Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest is a master teacher, author, humanitarian, and our historian, and founder of Fondation Marie-Claire et Rose Felicité Bonheur de Saline. She spent 15 years living and traveling all over Africa. She has spent over 50 years teaching and researching the story of the Haitian people. She spent some time as a professor at the State University of Haiti. She has a master's in education and one in linguistics from Nigeria. She speaks five languages and has taught and lectured all around the world. She's known as one of the leading our historians and activists for the people of Haiti and a leading expert in the Vudung spirituality. She was one of the voices for the documentary 1804, The History of IET, produced by Tariq Nasheed. You can also find her through her YouTube series, Baina and Friends, where she interviews some of the prominent names in education and activists across the diaspora. She recently published the book, Sheroes of the Haitian Revolution, and she is definitely one of my sheroes. Let's welcome today, Professor Baina Belo to the program. Professor Belo, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I am well, man. Uh, just want to thank you so much for your massive amount of work that you've just done for us, for our culture. Uh, I know for me, like most of my Haitian history education has come from listening to your lectures and, you know, reading through some of the work that you've done. And, you know, I really appreciate it because prior to looking at your work, you know, all I knew was like, you know, Haitian the Haitian Revolution, you know, freed the Haitian people from, you know, slavery from France. And that was pretty much the gist of it. I didn't know the intricate details and the rich culture and the history, man. So you really brought that to life for me. So I appreciate that. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so one of the things that you like to say instead of history or his story, you say our story or our story. So why is that term important to you? And, you know, why, why do you refer to what m most of us would, you know, call history as our story? All right. Generally, what they call history is exactly what they tell you. His story, the story of males, of certain type of males in certain positions. Whereas there is no such narrative. Every narrative is made of every living thing that is there. Uh, if we look at this picture that I have in the background, well, the trees, the plants, the people, the women, the men, the children, the elders, uh, the children in uniform, every one of them participated in making what was happening there that day. But somebody is going to write a narrative and say he, whoever he chose you know, to be the key person, and uh, write it that way. So that's why they always make you say his story, history. Right. So since we do not look at any narrative that way, we found that once you open your eyes, you just see immediately. Uh, for example... I had read tons of material about Daphne. He did this, he did this, he did this, and he did that. But then when I start getting into 
the narrative of his life, I find a Tatoya who raised him, who risked her life to bring Destiny, to create, to forge the men that we know as Destiny. We, uh, then we have Marie-Claire Felicité Bonheur, who became his wife, taught him how to read and write French. There is Marie-Jean, with a troop of over a thousand women, assured his security, except for the day he was slaughtered. Mm. So, when we look at all of this, now that's just uh, now looking at the female who's always present in every narrative. Every story, if you're telling the real story, has to start with he was born, right? Right. <laughs> and there is a woman there, whether you want it or not. And there are probably several women, because there are two or three others helping to give birth. Mm. So it's never just a he was born story. So then that's one part. The animal are very present. He has a special relationship with his horses. Claire would only ride gray horses that he called the silver, silver star. We one had, you know, people have uh, their part of their life is their dog and it's their this or their cats or their whatever. That's part of the story. We can put it out. And the plant. We eat every day. We, whenever we are hurt, we find some kind of plant, whether in pill form or not. The plant at the base. Mm. So, can we ignore the story of all these life forms, the women, the elders, the children, the plants, the, the animals, when we say tree, already excluded them. But when we say our street, everybody is involved. That makes so much sense, man. I, I think I'm definitely going to, you know, use that term now, just thinking about history versus our story. And including her story and the children and the elders, like you just said, like they were a huge part, especially with the Haitian Revolution that you talk about all the time. They were a huge part of the war. It wasn't just the uh, the men with history. So super important. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I kind of want to get to know your story a little bit, actually, too. So looking back, I guess, to your lineage, like looking back at who you are, um, who would you say? Professor Bainobello is like what is part of your story as far as you know your your ancestors and the person that you are. Uh, biologically, I'm the product of Marie Marie Christine Domerson and Yves Auguste. Socially, I'm a product of Marie Christine, her mother Julienne Donet and Eve's mother, Sylvie Pouillet. So three women build me up. Those are the people from day one, from whatever, at every age, they were there, worried about taking me to school or taking care of me when I'm sick or taking me on a vacation, making me have this or that experience. Those are the three women who created the Vaida. Mm. Got it. Okay. 
So I kind of want to get into how you got into the work that you're doing with our story and how you got really interested in that and knew that this was going to be where you focus your attention in life. So what brought you to studying our story and uh, what were some of your earlier experiences that kind of led you to the path that you are in now? Um, I don't know that there was a moment where I declared to myself that I was going to study women or the other elements, the other life forms. Uh, it sort of happened. Um, yes, I was passionate. Even as a little girl, I remember maybe seven, eight, when I had to recite that Anakaona died in history. And when I said it, then I started to cry and everybody was mocking me. But this thing happened a long time ago. What are you crying about? But just that's the way I felt. It was very present very vivid, and every time I would say to you, ask me to recite it 10 times, and 10 times I will cry. Uh, the same thing happened when I talked about when I was asked to recite about Toussaint Louverture, and when the French took him, and I was booing in the class, <laughs> and, uh, you know. So, to me, that's where my connection to the past narratives began. Uh, different from other children, it wasn't just a story from way back then. It was very much part of my life today. The, the hurt, the pain, of whatever happened, whatever I was talking about, whatever I was reciting, because mostly it was about reciting, not about understanding either. It was just, you know, you memorize and then you come and recite to the teacher. So uh, today, I feel in those days, I already had a very strong connection with the narratives of the past. Mm -hmm. uh, in France now, when I was sent to school in France, probably around 14, when we got in the history book of what they call social studies, I thought, you know, there's a paragraph, there's a, a chapter on America, so I rushed to look at the continent of America, and in America, I look for IT, of course. And IT, IT, French colony, period, finish. <laughs> Out. Man. But it's not. And when I raise my hand, I tell the teacher, no, IT is not a French colony. There's a mistake in the book. He said, didn't you see who wrote it? Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so. And it's approved by the French and geography or whatever, history, something, academy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, but I'm from IT. I know IT is not a colony. Oh, I was kicked out of school for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Did they, like, remove you from class right then and there? Right then and there. Wow. <laughs> Man. What was what was like your parents' react? What was what was your reaction? And what was your parents? Oh. So then I was given the I had to return. I had to to, to turn in a paper, one thousand one thousand words, proving what I said. How do you do that at forty? 
So anyway, didn't find anything in the library to help. Uh, went to the Haitian embassy in Paris, did not get anything there either. But then the idea came to take a picture of the embassy. I took a picture of the front of the embassy. Hmm. Then I went back to the boarding school, recited some of the stuff I had learned by heart in IT, demonstrating that here's the, you know, here's our Austria. And since 1804, we've been independent. They didn't even look at the paper. I came <laughs> in, gave it to them, and then he took it, dropped it on his desk, and said, you can't go back. How did how did you interpret that as as a you know as a fourteen year old? Well, I don't know. Then I can't recall how I felt, but I felt frustrated, and um, you know that she didn't even look, even pretend to look, and uh, I was very angry. I know that much, and at that point, I know I said wants to find myself in a situation where people are going to want to tell me about my country. Mm. Since then, I don't read novels like most girls my age were reading. I don't go to movies if it's not about history. I do not deal with anything that's not going to tell me about my ancestors, my people, whether Africans, whether Asians, Jamaicans, Trinidadians. I don't care. Us, I want to know. Man, what a what an experience right there. I guess that brought about just the activism in you, man, and really, you know, prepared you for just the life work that you were ready to do. Maybe that was the ancestor speaking to you. Yes, I believe I, I have been guided by the ancestor. Yeah. Um, so a lot of your young life, too, you spent in IT in uh, Liberia, in uh, France, in the U.S. So what were some of your experiences like as a young girl traveling around to the, you know, different countries? Was it different in regards to your education as well, too? Did you find certain places, you know, that you were able to learn more or that, you know, you felt more comfortable in? Um, any, any place that our people were present, I felt at home. In Liberia, I don't believe I felt, you know, I'm a Haitian in Liberia. By the time I met two or three friends, they start making friends, they start talking, they start teaching me how to speak by, and we're doing all kinds of things together. I was home. You know, it was like an expansion of Haiti, not a different place. Mm. Uh, in Togo, I was home. In Nigeria, I was home. Um, in France, I believe that I was, I didn't feel lonely because I had so many dreams. So I was eager to go to bed at night because my, the largest part of my life was all the things I learned in my dreams. Um, one example is we were supposed to be going on a outing. I struggled to get the money to pay and whatnot. Uh, my, my, parents, my mother sent me the money, but I was a little bit scared that it didn't arrive with time, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I was living in Liberia at the time, or in the Congo, I'm not so sure. 
So anyway, she was in Africa. I was in France. And the correspondence didn't come very smoothly. So I was a little bit worried. But when he arrived, and I paid for the trip. And the night before, or two days before, I dreamt of this military guy who came and said, you're not going on this trip. I was what? I paid for the trip. What do you mean I'm not going? <laughs> you know. He says, no, you're not going. Next morning, I, you know, that's, that's probably, I ate too much. That's probably why I had this stupid dream. <laughs> okay. So the next day is the day of the trip. Got up, got dressed. And as I was going down from my room, I fell down the stairs. Wow. And there was no going for it. Mm. So everybody left. Now it's pretty sad. And uh, the doctor came, said no, there was nothing broken. And shortly after the doctor left, I could walk around and have nothing. I could say I had nothing broken. <laughs> but right then and there, I thought something drastic happened. Hmm. So, at the end of the day, towards the end of the day, news came. The bus had an accident. Four of the children died. Wow. From that point on, I never played with my dream. Yeah. That is insight right there. Wow. So um, going into like somebody, you know, traveling like we're just talking about, you ended up going uh, to the U.S. Uh, for college. What made you make the decision to come to the U.S.? And then um, what was that college experience like being in the U.S.? And uh, also, too, like why linguistics? I didn't make any decisions. My parents, wherever they were, my parents, when they were in Liberia, decided to send me to France. I didn't make no decision. And my parents, when they moved to the U.S., decided to bring me from France to the U.S. I didn't make no decision. Mm. Okay. So um, my life has generally not been a, the kind of life where I sit and plot and happen. But it's more, I wonder or desire and open myself to something and then it happens. It's more that way. For example, I said when I was 13 years old that I wanted to have three sons. And uh, in fact, my mother spanked me. What? I can be talking about children and toys. What do you know about having three sons? <laughs> Got some good people for, for saying that. But it didn't stop me from thinking it. I'm going to have three sons. I'm going to have three sons. And then by the time I was 18, I said, well, if my first child is not a boy, I'll have only one child. If it's a boy, I'll carry on for my three sons. Sure enough, got married at 19, wow. and I had three sons and a daughter. <laughs> that's a, yeah, insight, man. Wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> um, so 
19 married man i guess back in those days it wasn't you know it wasn't it wasn't too bad 19 i know people might be thinking now like 19 like i don't even know what i'm wearing tomorrow at 19 <laughs> like, you know to be married at 19 that is fascinating man um and you were you were in the u.s right yes and um married to a man who i didn't know him two months really I poked my head into a room at the university, at Tanzania University, the student's room. I was looking for whatever. And I poked my head, and this man came up and said, Oh, I've been waiting for you for 10,000 years. <laughs> he was up a conversation. <laughs> so that's what it took. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So uh, you're in the U.S., you're studying linguistics. What What was it about linguistics that you know, obviously we know that you were passionate about education. You know, I saw that, you know, you were teaching your grandmother at a young age and education was just in you. But what about the linguistics that kind of attracted you? I believe I wanted to understand language. Uh, I realized that most of us don't know what we're saying. Mm. We speak on reflexes, you know, people will say whatever, and never think in terms of what does it mean? What vibration this word carries? What frequency is emit? See? Uh, so I wanted to understand language so I would know what I'm saying. It was very personal. The interest in linguistics. I just wanted to be clear. And uh, so when I started looking into uh, the old, what's the origin of this word and what, how it over the years, the, the austri of the word, the word that meant this in the 12th century means that in the 14th century means this in the 18th century. And it's the same word, but it has a whole story that goes along with it. And you might not, it can even mean, that's why a word can mean it's what it means. And the contrary. Mm. If I say I'm studying history, then you say, oh, she's a historian. She's scientific, blah, blah, blah. But if I tell you, don't you tell me that story. You're telling me a story there. <laughs> Word. But now we mean something that's untrue. Mm. So, in most words, you can, depending on where you're using it and what what period of its artistry that you in touch with, you can say a lot of things that are not what the other person is thinking. Someone who only knows this word as meaning this will be totally confused. You can talk and, uh, you know, so-called speak the same language, but we don't. And uh, Christians are very good at that. Yes. Using words to make you think while they say something different. Mm. And it is because of my interest in linguistics that you will not find me using words like hell, no, to greet people. What mm. does it really mean, hell, oh? Man, now I'm going to be thinking about this one. Never thought about it like that. Wow. Hmm. 
How do you how do you greet how do you greet people then? Greetings. How are you? Jumbo, Alafia, Sanu. Plenty of possibilities as to what we can say in all the languages that exist. Mm. Lone. Yeah. Uh, I would never give up like traditionally in IT. We greet each other by saying Lone respect. Yes. So which means I comes to you with honor. And you receive me with respect. Yes, um, and I know we we uh, spent some time talking to Isley, and she was talking about uh, you know not saying Haiti in regards to like hate e Haiti, and uh, you know instead of using that using IET, and I never thought about that either before. So you know linguistics is just so interesting. Yes. So, but more important than linguistics. Is thinking. Mm. Mostly we don't think. We do rope talking, rope behaving. So we have to think more so we can choose what we want to say. Agreed, agreed. All right. Um, I find with linguistics, especially with uh, Aishan culture um, in our language, Aishan uh, Creole. Um, some of us are very uncomfortable with it. You know, we rather speak French or when we learn English, that's all we speak. And um, I remember speaking to a young person that was from IET and she didn't know much English. And I'm like speaking to her in uh, Creole and she's not saying anything. I'm like, yo, what? Why are you not saying anything? And then she was like, I can't wait to, to, to remove myself from this nasty language and learn English. And I'm never going to speak Creole again once I learn English. So there's this... Uh, you know, idea of, uh, you know, Aishin Creole and what, you know, it, what it, what it represents for folks, I guess, that don't know the historical components of it. So being a specialist in linguistics, can you share with us how um, Creole came to be and what it kind of represents for our culture? All right. The short of it is, in order to have a successful revolution, we created three tools. Number one, it's the mind that you have to be, be on. So our people created what is today called Vodou, but which is our cosmic worldview. This is the way we view the world, our own way of viewing the world. Yes? Mm -hmm. Some inheritance from, but mostly, it's what we decide we want. So we have our world view. And then what your way of looking at the world, you need a way to express it. So then you create a language. You can speak your world. When Aishans are singing, when you take this song, it gives you actually the entire world view in just that little song. Mm. La reine soleil levée. 
The first thing they take son is a queen, female, in our world view. So when you speak in French and you say, le soleil, you are in contradiction with your own worldview. Mm. So you're speaking somebody else's language and somebody else's worldview. When you speak English and you say the sun, it was, again, you are in somebody else's worldview and somebody else's language. Because sun is not a human entity like we've received. Sun in IT is a queen. Not only is she female, but she's a high ranked female. She's an authority. You have all that in that one little word when you say queen son. Identify, um, as I say already, her, that she's female. Okay. So the queen's son has arisen, and God has asked her to step back. So son has a direct relationship with God. And God is a higher authority than the son because God can tell her, okay, hold on today. Don't come out. Hold it. And the son goes on to say, we are children. So when mom can see mom, we start crying. Okay. But then they say, don't you worry. When the rain comes, why the sun must go? Because rain must come. And she is just as important as sun. So when rain comes, we will means everybody will be happy. But if the sun was to stay forever and never go away, and there would be no rain, then a lot of us will be crying, not just the children. Mm -hmm. In that tiny little storm, you have a mass of knowledge. But if you don't value your language, you don't value anything in it, you go look for what did the Frenchman say about the sun. <laughs> and it's useless to you. It cannot help you. And, and furthermore, mm -hmm. I say, if it's because we created our worldview, then our own language to express our own worldview, which then brought traditions, college structure. And from that point on, we fight anyone we're bound to win. Those are the three primary tools of the revolution. That is so powerful, man. Uh, just that context. Uh, yeah, I think you're so right. Like just another language opens up a whole new universe. And then it's your universe. It's not from somebody else's context or point of view. It's your universe and, you know, the universe of your ancestors, you know, that saw certain things and explained certain things differently that other, you know, people that are not a part of your culture did not realize or did not see. So Definitely well put. And uh, 
you know, linguistics is just so interesting. Along with linguistics, um, obviously spirituality is a huge part of who you are. Uh, but you've all you've studied a lot of different, you know, spiritual systems like Hinduism, Islam, Arabic, uh, and then of course Hudun. So what were some of the major lessons that you got from studying some of these uh, different spiritual systems and why did you ultimately choose Haitian Vudun as part of your spiritual choice? Uh, first of all, it's not a choice. Mm. I am a Vudunvi, whether I know it or not. I am a Vudunvi, whether I go to church or to the mosque. It doesn't change anything as to who I am, because that's part of my identity. So when I practice, let's say, Muslim, Islam, it's like a, an outfit, you know. You join the you join the German army, and you have a German uniform, and you speak German language, and you obey the German law. So does that make you a German? doesn't. And that's what most of us don't understand. I can join anything I want. If I am clear that I've joined, the, for example, the Nation of Islam. I was part of the Nation of Islam. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, that's the Islam that I'm that I was part of. Mm. But Islam to me was not about religion. It was a political stand for Black people. Mm. It was a transformative structure for people. And therefore, as a member of the nation, I was part of the MGT. MGT is the Muslim Girls Training. And as a Muslim girls training, then you also join the thank God. Defend yourself, how to defend your family. You learn how to cook, but not cook because you're a woman, you gotta cook. But you learn how to cook. Food is about the health of the family. Mm. You would never find my children eating tons of candy or kinds of junk or drinking Kool-Aid. Never. My children didn't even eat I didn't buy bread from the store when my children were young. I made my own bread, whole wheat bread. Okay. So the nation of Islam, as um, uh, my experience there, was a very formative and very important. And when I moved on to other learning structures, learning uh, situations, I I will never give up all that the Nation of Islam has brought to me. Uh, the discipline that I have in my life uh, was brought to me because of the Nation, where everything was structured at 2 a.m., at 7 a.m., that you have things to do. Never um, oh, occupation <laughs> in the Nation. No? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and I will always be very grateful you know, I also taught at the Muhammad University of Islam, uh, you know, primary and secondary mm -hmm. classes. Um, so all of this gives you, uh, it trains you and it prepares you. And it's like my life is such 
I go into this and I do it. And then I reached a point and I said, okay, it's time to move on to something else. And I moved to do something else. And that something else doesn't make me dislike what I was doing before. But it, I realized how this prepared me for that. Mm. So I don't think I could have had the other I have today had I not gone through all the different practices before coming to it. You see, we do a lot of cooking in Urdu. Some of us may do it with a certain amount of carelessness. But I'm very, very attentive when I'm being taught how to prepare something. Because I had learned in the nation the importance of food for the well-being of living of humans, but living forms in general. So that's, you know, the kind of thing where this one prepared me for that and made me better at that. Powerful, man, powerful. Uh, so as far as we're doing, uh, you know, and we, you talk about just the different principles and the, uh, just the, the ideology of it and everything. So how have you been able to incorporate some of the Wudun principles into your everyday life? Well, it's not about incorporating the Wudun principles. As I said earlier, I am a Wudun whether I knew it when I was in the nation, I was I was a Buddhist. When I was practicing Hindu, I was a Buddhist. That has not changed. Today is just that I am conscious who I am, and all of these principles are not out there or in some book somewhere, but the different principles of Buddhism are right here. In me. So I have to learn how to tap into myself. And that's why the, the seminar, Learn to Know Yourself, has been brought to you because we are conditioned to think outside of us. God is up in the sky, something is there, the angels are someplace, wherever. Uh, then we have to try to be like so-and-so, and no, it's all easier. The mango seed you bury in the earth, that's not for another mango tree to know how to grow. Mm. That little seed going to go through deterioration and rejuvenation and then produce a tree. And that tree is going to do everything according to what was in the heart of that seed. And the same is for you. Kind of be like St. Joseph for one or the other one, or the God in the sky, the paradise people, or whatever it is. You're not going to be what you come on this earth to be, which is you. Yeah. Thank you for that, man. That, that just made me smile. That's what Vudu gives us. When we say Ligba, 
So we say Legba opens the door. The person says, okay, Baina, sit on the chair, and you get that door open, and call on Legba, or sing a song Legba, and the door is going to open. No, the door will never open. Once that door opens, I will walk up to that door. Yes, as I walk, I may sing a Legba song. As I walk, I may think of some Legba invocation, but I know it's the Legba here, inside of me. That's going to give me the ideas as to how to muscle up and open the door. There is no, you know, wait for some savior that's going to come in. Take care of this. Yes, that makes so much sense. Um, another important idea, I think, of the voodoo culture is the look at life and death. And I think we see that in the revolution of just soldiers having no fear, you know, just um, of repercussions of anything and fighting without that fear of death. So can you talk about how in the Wudun culture, life and death are interrelated and how it is looked at? It's not that in the Wudun culture, life and death, death is interrelated. It is. Whether you say it or say something different, we just took the example of the mango. Mm -hmm. You bury the mango seed. So it's dead. And then the dead mango seed is going to deteriorate once it's under the earth. And then it's going to give you a tree. The tree will give fruit for years and years and years. That's the life part. But each one of those seeds will go back and do the same thing over and over again if there isn't a program to remove seeds from all fruit and bring famine to the world. Mm. So. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It also makes sense as to, like, why you're so adamant about celebrating birthdays and not death days. And, um, yeah, I was just thinking about that because I listened to a previous interview you did and you spoke about just the heroes of the revolution, why it's important for us to remember how they lived and not really just the day they died. Not, I think that's usually what we're used to remembering. Like, you know, everybody knows the day Malcolm X died or Martin Luther mm -hmm. King was assassinated and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes we don't even know their birthdays, like when they were brought into this world to give us what they were able to, you know, give us and do for us while they were here. So I think that's super important to look at that. Okay. So about life and death. In Vudu, the difference is in our culture, in our worldview, we have a principle called Gede. Just like we have the principle for opening situations, creating opportunities, is Legba, then you also have a principle called Gede. And Gede is the principle of how you stand at the crossroad of life and death. When I'm facing Life, death is behind me. And if I turn around and face death, life is behind me. Mm -hmm. When I go to sleep, I'm kind of dead. But it's a small, short death. I will come out of that shortly. Even if I look like I'm not breathing, you look at me and say, no, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Okay? So life and death walk together. And if we understand that, then we don't go into all kinds of panic situations. What? This person died? Oh my goodness. Oh, he's too young. He's too short. He's too... Please. Part of death. That's the, death is the only guarantee we have on this world. You don't know if you will get married, if you don't know you'll have children, if you don't know you'll be poor, if you'll be rich, if you'll be rich. But you will know one thing for sure. You will die. Hmm. That's the only guarantee we have when we come into life. But life and death are together. And Gede is that principle of the togetherness of life and death. And Gede is afraid of nothing. Some people will say, oh, Gede say a lot of uh, bad words. Gede don't say bad words. You all know the words that Gede is saying. And you say them under or in hiding, or you do the things Gede is talking about. You do them in the dark. You do them at night. You hide and do it. Gede speaks everything out loud within the sun. He's afraid of nothing. Hmm. So that's the spirit of life and death. That's also why he knows a lot. Because he knows all about the world of life, all about the world of death. And that's also why Gede is a fabulous doctor. He can heal you out of anything. So when we look at our story, you know, a lot of, like you mentioned earlier, you talked about that when you looked at your French books, that all it said was IT was a French colony. So a lot of times when we look at our story from the context of, you know, our conquerors, we don't find much, right? And when we got to go back and look at it for ourselves, sometimes we got to talk to the griots and the elders and kind of unravel everything and figure things out. And I know that's one thing that you've been able to do a lot through your research. But for those that kind of really don't understand how those stories are passed down, uh, what would you say to those that say that, well, how can you be sure that the information that you're gathering is accurate if it's coming from what somebody is saying as opposed to something like a, a document in history or something of that sort? First of all, I, I love these questions, this <laughs> type of question. Because the number one thing, tell me, if a liar is a liar when he speaks, is he not a liar when he writes? Mm. Okay? Your Christians have lied about the entire world's so-called history. All of it. They have lied on geography. They have lied on anthropology. They have lied on... What is it that they did not lie about? <laughs> so, how come the, the, the liars, the, the, the convicted liars, mm -hmm. you want to know what they say. You want their documents. And then your ancestor or your elder, when he speaks, you have doubt. And you're supposed to be scientific. 
Another chance, you and I teach. You do worse than you did mm. for what you ask for forgiveness for. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you he asked for forgiveness for having ruined the Asian rice by imposing their rice, Arkansas rice, to IT. Mm. Okay. Now the next uh, the next action this man poses when he was UN rep- representative in IT. He arranged for his brother-in-law to buy our gold mines. I'm sure within four or five years, he will say he's sorry for that too. Mm. But I never see a thief who takes what he stole and bring it back and say, okay, I stole this. I'll give it back to you. Please, I'm sorry. If you don't give it back first. So these people... They will take any color, they will take anything, and continue to do their crimes. Mm. So, as liars, you can't beat them. You cannot beat them. (laughs) And if it's important to you that only if they say something that you can take it seriously, well, then that's your problem, not mine. Well said, well said one of the great lies that you kind of unearthed yourself was the age of um, the age of death in Haiti in IT. And a lot of us, you know, think that, you know, IT is one of the poorest countries in the world and people die so young and this and that and the third, but you have interviewed over a hundred sanitarians, people that are over a hundred years old and you found them, and I'm sure without your work, we would have probably been thinking the same thing. Like there's no elderly in IET because it's a poor country and people don't survive long and all this stuff. And obviously that has not been true. So what have you learned from interviewing and talking to so many sanitarians in IET just about their experiences and uh, some of the lessons that you were able to put together? Well, uh, if I were to pick I'm trying to pick one one example. Canis of this needs to be 126 years. Wow. Fully conscious, fully listening, taking care of, of himself. No problem. Again, um, on Thursday, I will be buried. Buried on Saturday. I will be buried 
that can be valued. Because buried, we always think of in the past. Mm-hmm. I will, you will bury me on Saturday. Be eating at the table. Don't just say nonsense like that. Come on. You know, I know a couple of women who are interested in this stuff. I'm not here to joke. This is no time for talking nonsense. You will bury me on Saturday. I don't want to go on ice. I will, my, my breath will be interrupted on Friday afternoon. Don't be afraid. Spend the night with you. Only if you can bury it. died at 108, came to see me, so we're going to be together. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, he said that on Thursday. On Friday, I'm told, he went to visit a neighbor that he often a cola, a cola champagne. Mm-hmm. With his cola, he said to her, this is the next cola we're going to have together. But tomorrow, I will be buried. She too, she called me, she was a little disturbed. After his cola, he went back home, went for his nap, and didn't wake up. Hmm. So by 4.35 o'clock, the, uh, the woman at the house realized that he was no longer. So she called me and let me know. But he told everybody before going for his nap, he went around. Shake hands with people, tell them goodbye, say this is the last time they're doing this. And I've had the same experience with a number of 120 plus people. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. That is interesting. Man, the insight. That is just so interesting. I didn't even know there were so many sanitarians in, um, living in IET. And, you know, the things that we never find out if we don't uncover it for ourselves, like you say, like, if we just go with what the story has been, you know, we, we will be limited through so, you know, I'm sure you learned so much talking to so many of them about everything, our history and what they've lived through, their experiences that we would have never got. Very true. Very true. And one of the things that made me admire Castro, Fidel Castro, even more, is when I learned that in um, in Cuba, when he was alive, when any Cuban turned 100, the president would leave the capital and go to you wherever you are to wish you a happy birthday. Wow, I didn't know. <laughs> Every and after 110, he goes every year to see you. There was a man nicknamed Avion who moved to Cuba. <laughs> so uh, when he was 114, Castro asked him, what would you like to do? What is something extraordinary that you want for yourself that I would like to offer you? And he said, the only thing that I would want for is to see IT again. So uh, by the time he was 122, Creval was president of IT and he went to Cuba. And Castro told him that he had a 122-year-old Haitian man 
whose only wish is to see IT one more time. And Castro said, I'm, I'm ready to send him to IT. I'll send the plane, I'll send him with his nurse, with his doctor, with everything he needs. But what I want from the Haitian government is that you welcome him as an official, not as a anybody. Mm-hmm. He must be welcomed in a country. You know they never did it. Really? Why not? They never did. He died at 127. They never did. Wow, I didn't I didn't even know that about Cuba. All right. Um, of course we cannot leave today without getting some uh stories of women in the revolution. And I thank you for really doing the research. I know you told my daughter you did twenty years of research to write the book. And, you know, I really appreciate it. It's something that, you know, I was going through with my daughter and it was pretty easy to read and everything. So she was looking at it. And I think those stories, the her stories, we call them, are so important because a lot of times when we look at history, his story, the women are left out. You know, it's like women were just in the house cleaning and cooking while the men were, you know, fighting the fight and doing what they had to do. And, they, you know, when they got back home, that was it, that kind of thing. And you don't even think about what the women were doing because they're never mentioned. So I really appreciate doing the work and identifying some of these powerful women and exactly what contributions that they had. And I wanted to tackle just a few um, before, you know, we go and everything. Fine. Uh, well, let's say, let's look at three women. Let's see if I can resume, make a, res- a summary. Three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the woman that is, to me, the most outstanding is Santoya. Santoya is from Daume. She was Agbaraya Toya. Agbaraya is her title. It's like general in the women's army in Daume because Daume already had a female army and a male army. Uh, In Daume, men and women do not fight together. There is uh, the, the boundaries for women and the boundaries the male. If you attack the country, the male army will, you'll find the male army. If the male army loses and you continue, you'll find the female army. Mm. And they don't play. <laughs> male army take prisoners. Female army don't. Tells you, if you either live or die, or die, that's it. There are no, no in-between when you're fighting. And uh, the king is protected by the female army. The capital city is protected by the female army. Wells are protected by the female army. So everybody had their own space and whatnot. So, uh, so she was part of that army. You enter the army when you're 10 years old or under. Mm-hmm. And in the army, they educate you. You learn about astronomy. You learn about uh, archery. You learn about healing. Because you can't be a fighter and not know how to heal. Because you're going to be doing a job that's going to be hurting and killing people. So you have to know the other side. So this woman is kidnapped and brought to Saint-Domingue and sold. In a few months, she figure out how to run away from that patient. And when she gets to some 
somewhere up top of the mountain, she found another woman who had run away also, but who was pregnant and was about to deliver her baby. So she helped her. A boy is born. But shortly after, the woman feels death coming. So she turns her child over to Toya and says, please, raise him for me. Make sure he knows freedom. In a slavery structure, a dying woman gives you as a mission to raise her child and make sure he knows freedom. And when I was about to kill herself, as a matter of fact, before meeting this woman. Hmm. So now she has to change her own decision for herself because she's accepted this job. And she's going to fight all her life. She has no authority. She has sold this child to a different plantation a number of times. But she says, Every time slavery separated us, life arranged for us to come back together. So if they were to on plantation A and they sold the boy to plantation G, a few months later there's some kind of problem here in plantation A and she is she turns up in plantation G. Or they both turn up in plantation P. Mm-hmm. No, but somehow life always brings them back together. So she was able to educate this young man until he joined other armies, went on with his life, and we come to know this young man as Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Powerful. Yeah. And on the day that he is declaring independence, Toya is sitting down listening to the speech and feeling very much that he has accomplished the promise to the mother. And not only is that boy free, but the boy frees everybody else. Hmm. So to me, Toya is the best teacher in the world. If you can, within a slavery system, the horrible, you are Christian, slavery system, educate a child for that child to know freedom and bring freedom about. That's the best teacher in the world. That's the kind of teacher I'd like to be. Absolutely. Powerful, powerful. The second person I'd like to mention is uh, Marie-Jeanne was a woman at the head of over a thousand female uh, troops. And these women are people who do things like most people, some people say, well, men to many people, you know, of course, you won't find Marie-Jeanne's story in no Euro-Christian books. You know that. <laughs> not surprised, <laughs> not surprised. And half of the things she does, she and her troops do, People would say, well, because she is magic, or they'll find all kinds of ways of explaining. But as far as I'm concerned, these are women who just knew themselves so well, and they were trained to tap into their natural forces. 
And that's what made them so extraordinary. Another woman is um, Sissy Fatima, who is um, the woman who organized, she took four years to organize a less than one hour meeting. How about that? You have a one hour meeting, but you need four years to plan it. Mm. But things will go well. You know what kind of planning that is? And this that's is during slavery, period. you know? Yeah. Man. And that's the uh, meeting of August 14, 1791, which is where, against the law, the law at the time said, if they find two or three of us any place without permission from the slavers, you will be decapitated immediately. Mm. So that's the law, the law of the land. And this woman is going to go about convince people to come and meet to decide how to crush slavery. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And she realized it. And she had no cell phone, no Zoom, no, no mm -hmm. TV, no laptop. Yeah. And she did it. Did she plan the location too of um Wakaima? Was that where she, you know exactly where she where she wanted to meet? Of course. Yeah. There's so actually she did it in several locations the same night. Wow. <laughs> so so that's why you will find from some historians will be arguing, no, it wasn't here, it was there, it wasn't here, it was there. Okay. I don't get into that kind of <laughs> Man, uh, I've, I've been smiling the entire interview because this is just like spiritual food, just speaking with you about our story and, you know, some of the things that you, you've been able to uncover yourself, not even from previous historians, man. I'm just so honored to be able to speak with you and for you to share some of your wisdom with us. So just thank you so much for coming on and giving us some of your time. Uh, we usually ask guests for one last thing, if they can leave us with their favorite quote and what it means to them. So we'll be honored to hear that from you. Well, then it will be from Daphne. We have dared to become free. Let us now dare to use our freedom for ourselves and in our best collective interest. Powerful, powerful. And um, I always say that whenever we talk about the the uh, revolution that, you know, I, think, I know you mentioned this too, that the ancestors started this and we have to continue the work. You know, there, there's a lot of more work to do. And I think a lot of times when we look at history, we look at it, just eyeing it and, you know, being awed by it, but we are living history. And I think it's important for us to continue the work. And I think that is part of the work that you're doing, continuing that legacy that our ancestors started so again thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for all the work that you do most of my you know Aishan uh history education has been from you so you like my biggest educator when it comes to that so I appreciate just all the work that you've done and the time that you've put in and again man we honor and we thank you thank you very much for having me and may you be blessed to add your victories to those of your ancestors.
Indeed, indeed, indeed. Listeners, please share the program. Super important that we tell our story in the way that our ancestors meant for it to be told in their viewpoint, in our viewpoint. Uh, So definitely share the program. And of course, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.